Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Empathy Edge podcast. I'm your host, Maria Ross, and this is the place to be to learn about leaders, brands, and teams who are harnessing the value of compassion and empathy as a means to success. Today, I'm talking with Kristen Elliott, the heart-centered VP of marketing for Eddie Bauer, one of my favorite outdoor brands. She's helped lead the company through many phases of its evolution back to its roots as an outdoor outfitter. Today, we're going to talk about how a global brand can truly live its values and how you create a culture that thrives in uncertainty so that you can stay connected with customers and adapt and pivot quickly. We talk about living at work and why more and more people want to know what your company is doing to help people find ways to collaborate and connect. We're also going to talk about how people go back to brands they know and trust, especially in a crisis, and specifically what Eddie Bauer has done to adapt and stay close to its customers while still staying relevant to what's going on in their lives. We're also going to talk about truly living your values as a company and a brand and the risk that means. We're going to talk about Eddie Bauer's work getting involved with Black Lives Matter. And Kristen's going to share the thinking as a marketing leader of what goes into that decision, even at the risk of losing customers. And finally, we're going to talk about Kristen's passion work as an end-of-life doula. She's trained to guide people to find meaning in their lives, come to terms with their unfinished business, and have really hard conversations so they can think deeply about all the joy, fulfillment, and love they've experienced. She's also working on a program that helps the living navigate these same big topics to their deep joy while still kicking. And we're going to talk about how this passion work of Kristen's really informs and guides her leadership style for the better. This is going to be a very enlightening episode for you and especially a great behind the scenes peek into what goes through a marketing leader's mind as they're making difficult decisions about living out their values while still keeping an eye on the bottom line? You don't want to miss this one. Stay tuned. Hello, Kristen. Welcome to today's episode of The Empathy Edge. I am super excited to have this conversation with you. You are such a fascinating leader, and the work you've done has been amazing, both in and out of the workplace. So I can't wait to dive in and find out all about your marketing philosophy and leadership style. Oh, Maria, I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a welcome break on a Monday afternoon, and I'm super <laughs> excited. Great. Well, I want to start off with a conversation that you and I have had prior to this recording, which is that we are, of course, living at work right now with everything going on in the pandemic. And this will probably not air for a while after we record, but I'm assuming we're going to be in the same place mostly that we are right now. So 
I mean, we were living at work before, but now we literally are living at work. Work has come into our homes and you've noticed an internal demand for human skills and addressing human needs at work. I think at one point you told me that the question you're getting from new recruits and from interviewees is, does the company have ways to connect and collaborate? Now, what is your take on why this is and how has that impacted your leadership style as a result? Yes, for sure. So I think maybe to start in the place of what the culture of Eddie Bauer was like pre-COVID and it was very much an office culture and the meetings were very much, well, it's a very meeting heavy culture too. So going from one meeting to the next and not really then having the space, even though we're all in person to connect on any level outside of what was being, you know, the topic of that meeting or the Mm -hmm. topic of the next meeting. And so I think once we all started working from home first and then now living at work, um, (laughs) (laughs) we, we really started to see into each other's lives in an intimate way, in a way that would not be available to us in the normal day-to-day office culture. Mm -hmm. And so now suddenly, you know, we're seeing dogs and kids on camera. We're seeing how people have to balance their lives while doing everything from the comfort of their home. And it just gives such a different way to view your coworkers. So from the inside out, we started to evolve. And what I noticed for my team specifically is that there was a lot more time taken to talk about how people were feeling. You know, certainly being in a situation none of us had been in before with this pandemic helped that conversation happen, but also having this intimate view into each other's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of folks are either experiencing that or experiencing the direct opposite. And so when candidates are are asking about what kind of environment this is, they want to know, is this a place where I can connect with people even though I'm not going to see them for, you know, months or maybe the next year, however long it is, and what mechanisms are in place for that? So the answer to that is we have actually increased our collaboration because we're digital. We're using tools like Slack and other messaging platforms to connect on a minute by minute basis instead of waiting till the next day, waiting till the next phone call or waiting for an email. We've taken so much of our communication off email and are either FaceTiming, Zooming, whatever your platform choice is. Um, in addition to messaging, it A, gets the work done faster, but B, it also allows for more collaboration and more true connection. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've noticed this deepening of the connection with everything that's been going on because we've had to rely on technology in that we could almost kill ourselves with email overload right now since everybody's in front of their computer and can email you easily. And at least I'm finding those people you really want to connect with and you want to have that space to breathe and create and innovate. We're setting meetings to talk on Zoom. Whereas I don't know that we would have done that before everything locked down. I know I was making an attempt to try to do that with people, but people are more receptive to it now in that, yeah, sure. I could use that break of just blocking out that time for a half hour to just focus on one thing, which is how we all should be living our lives. But unfortunately we don't. So it's interesting to me 
to see that technology has actually helped us connect even more than drive us apart. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When I think about those same scenarios at EB, I think we would probably also have done you know, some kind of a giant meeting brainstorm type of situation instead of like smaller one-on-one or a few more people really collaborating more frequently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so technology has empowered us to do that. And there are a lot more ideas being birthed and a lot more creativity because also people don't have to be creative between the hours of, you know, eight and five. And I think that really opens up the opportunity for more creativity as well. For sure. I did speak to a um, head of a, a global ad agency on a prior episode, and he actually said it is taking a toll on creatives, like true creatives in the ad industry, because so much of what they do is very like happenstance in the middle of a collaborative session. There's some brainstorm. So it's been interesting to see how they're adapting to technology. But I think sort of your general knowledge worker it's actually increasing the ability to collaborate and be creative and feel unrestricted because you are in your own home. You feel safe. There's that whole idea of psychological safety, increasing innovation. And when you're working from your own home in your own space, you're kind of a little more willing to take some risks and maybe say some things you wouldn't have said, but in a good way, you know, not anything offensive, but, but call things as they are, you're a little bit more willing to be honest because you're comfortable. You're in your chair and your office and your house and your bedroom. And I think there's just this interesting dichotomy that's happened with the stripping away of the business facade by peeking into people's lives. And it is, like you said, it is making us all see each other as more human, even maybe previously difficult coworkers. Oh yeah, for sure. So I think too, because, and you had a really good point a second ago, we are rooted in our homes. We are then not putting on that office facade. And so it also allows us to step into the role of the consumer a little bit more easily. We're able to assume how we might feel with a certain idea or a certain piece of creative or a certain innovation, and then market that, look at that, drive that in a little bit of a different way. For sure. And it, you know, it's something where there's there's no one you could talk to that isn't experiencing quarantine or lockdown or safety concerns. I mean, we're all collectively going through the same experience at the same time. And so we are sitting on the same side of the table as our customers and our consumers more than probably we ever have before. Yep. Yep. That's right. So let's talk about brand empathy. You know, you've mentioned in the past people in a crisis go back to brands they trust and are familiar with. I'd love if you can comment a little bit on that and what Eddie Bauer is doing right now, how they've been able to pivot so quickly and show up for their customers. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this auspiciously is uh, Eddie Bauer's 100 year anniversary. So, mm-hmm. 100 years of equipping people to have the outdoor experiences that they want to have. And that is really the foundation of the brand is the human experience in the outdoors. So it's kind of then a natural translation for us going into a situation like this. We're very lucky in the fact that the one place that we can see people gather 
experience and still kind of continue the commitment to our own health and wellness is outside. So we're, you know, we are lucky in that we are positioned well for that already. And for us, it's really, it was really just a pivot, a little bit of a pivot away from kind of grandiose travel and adventure and shared experiences and more toward accessible experiences in your own backyard that you can have yourself with those you are quarantining with, your loved ones, friends, et cetera, which is a pivot that we had started to make anyway, because I think consumers want to hear more about the accessible adventures that they can go on, the ways that they can experience the outdoors um, locally to them instead of, you know, thinking about climbing Everest. Shockingly, not everyone wants to climb Everest. Not at the top of their list right now, right? I, I just want to go to not ever. I just, I, that's my big goal right now is I want to go out to eat again and not have to, you know, worry about it. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. And so I think, you know, in that way, um, Eddie Bauer's well positioned to outfit people for those experiences and inspire them as well. And so talk to me a little bit more about this idea of in a crisis, people turn to brands they know and trust. Oh, sure. So, you know, I think when you're in a crisis situation where maybe a lot is unknown, you kind of go back to, I won't say lizard brain, but from a consumer perspective, no longer are you looking for the next flashy thing. You want something that's dependable, high quality at a good value. And Eddie Bauer has stood for that for a hundred years. Eddie Bauer also has huge brand recognition, really high brand recognition. And it's a brand that everybody knows. So at some place in nearly everyone's lives, no matter their demographics, they know of Eddie Bauer, they've had an experience, they know about the quality of our clothing and uh, and the craftsmanship. And that is what then bubbles up to the surface when they think about, okay, I need to get a tent. I need to get a jacket. So I'm not inside all winter. I want to still be out enjoying the outdoors. Mm -hmm. They think of brands that have been within their mindset for a long time. Right. They don't want to be making new decisions necessarily right no. now. So no. they're going back to those they trust. And actually I was speaking with marketing and customer experience expert Jay Bear just earlier today. And he was talking about the fact that brands are built in the bad times. Like that's really where you have an opportunity to shine and prove that you are meaningful in your customers' lives. And that how you show up is so important in a crisis as well, because they often will turn to just what they know and what's familiar and feel good about it. And again, not have that cognitive weight of having to try to make a decision about something new necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in apparel these days, sometimes long-term brands uh, kind of fall by the wayside in consumers' mindset because, you know, the newest, fastest, coolest thing that's up and coming often takes over in the news cycle. But when they hearken back to brands that they know and the brands are there with the confidence and the quality and the value that they've always had, mm -hmm. then suddenly you have an opportunity to remind consumers, right. Hey, you've always been here and you're going right. to continue to be here. And those are the brands that win. And, and the ones that meet them where they are and are not tone deaf, if they are ready to accept that they need to go to those consumers and say, remember we're here and here's how we're here and relevant right now. Which kind of brings me to finding out a little bit more about what you've done with Eddie Bauer as head of marketing in speaking out against racial injustice. 
we know a lot of brands stepped up this year around Black Lives Matter in a way that they never had before. And it, it it's gotten to the point where if you are not making a statement about it, you're the outlier right now. Absolutely. So I would love to hear a little bit more about what goes into the process of a head of marketing determining how to jump in to, you know, like I said, right now, it seems like everybody's talking about it, but having the courage to jump in and take a stand on something where it can be controversial for some people, or it can be, you know, you might lose customers from it. You might not. I hope that you wouldn't, but how do you as a marketing head make that decision of, yeah, we're going to get out there and we're going to take a stand. I just would love to get in the mindset of a leader like you and what goes into those decisions before it's seen as standard practice. It's when, when no, you know, at the beginning, when no one was saying anything right away, what goes through your head? Yeah, you bet. So I think, um, we did lose customers and we can talk about that in a moment, but I think to that end, one of the questions you have to ask yourself as a brand and as a leader and how you're going to lead through something like this in the beginning is, are you willing to lose those customers to do the right thing? And the answer for us was, it wasn't even a question for us. So the answer was absolutely not a question, Mm -hmm. but really for us, this work started a long time ago. So, and it goes back again to the fact that Eddie Bauer was a real man. He was a guide um, locally here in the Seattle area. And his mission in life was to empower people to have the outdoor experiences that they wanted to have not prescribed by him or anyone else, but you know, he had the gear, he knew where to go. He could lead you there, um, to have the experience that you wanted. And that is true for the brand today. So a couple of years ago, we started down the path of extending that conversation. He was a guide. We have a team of about 30 guides and athletes that help build technical product and inspire adventures through their storytelling. And we're always thinking about what's that next tentacle of guide, that next definition that we can evolve for the brand. Our uh, customer service agents are called guides. The folks in our stores are guides. We are all guides to helping our customers have outdoor experiences. And a couple of years ago, we started a program um, called All Outside that uh, brings folks on to the guide and athlete team. We call them leaders and they are folks that actively get marginalized populations outside. They're a different kind of guide. They're creating experiences for folks that don't feel welcome, haven't traditionally felt welcome or had a place in the outdoors to get out and have the experiences that they want. And we brought those folks on in a really different way. So instead of just paying for social posts, which there's nothing wrong with that. We do that Mm -hmm. too, but we wanted a deeper relationship with these folks. And so we built contracts for um, multiple years where the folks could come on and really help us change the organization from the inside out, looking at our HR practices, looking at our marketing practices, photographers and videographers that we hire, the folks that we partner with Um, as influencers, social media influencers, how we build product. And we started that a few years ago. We've made a lot of great progress. And this year, we're doubling the size of the team and Mm -hmm. extending folks' contracts to keep them on with us longer. So yes, we are in, you know, we were at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter conversation, absolutely. But our work started a while back as well. You're doing everything that the companies that say they are supporting 
racial equality should be doing. You already started down that road. And this is what I've always talked about, about the brand veneer or the empathy veneer is just thinking it's a function of marketing to go say this, that we are this, or put it on the website or do a cool ad. It really starts systemically. It starts, you know, brand and culture are two sides of the same coin. And it's about going inside the company and figuring out what are you actually doing? How are you actually walking that talk that you're saying to the world on the outside? And so it's so great to hear a model and unprompted by current trends. I'm doing air quotes right now in case, you know, people, (laughs) people can't see me, but this idea of like, it's got to be more than just the message. It's got to be operational. It's got to be in product. It's got to be in service delivery models, product delivery models, the supply chain up and down, the, yeah. the up and down. It's so systemic. It's systemic. And so I love that it seems what, and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it seems like given the work you'd already started, like you said, there really wasn't a question of whether you get involved. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the all outside movement, because that's been a very intentional movement based on what goes on in the outdoor and the recreation industry. Can you share a little bit about the high level data and the trends that you see about who gets involved in the outdoors and why Eddie Bauer's trying to change that? Yeah, absolutely. I should also say too, it was a no brainer for us to get involved on the forefront when the movement started happening. And also it gave us the opportunity to open up the discussion and really look deep within ourselves and our organization and, and, and look at where else can we improve? And there were a lot of places like, I don't want to, no one's perfect. Uh No. Yeah. So we'd started some work. There's a lot more we needed to do. And, you know, this gave us I think the opportunity to do that in a bigger way and faster than maybe we would have. Um, so I'm proud of that as well. And now we have, you know, several other things going on at all levels of the organization that you can check out um, right on our website. So we're keeping a running list in real time of the improvements that we're making so that anyone can see them at any time. Mm in the outdoor industry, you know, there is no secret. Um, we all know this and anyone looking from the outside in can see that it is traditionally male, white, cisgendered, and hetero. There hasn't been a lot of room and there's been a lot of improvements in the past number of years, but you know, traditionally there hasn't been a lot of room even for women, let alone marginalized populations. And um, people are still shocked. Like when we have conversations in social media about what Eddie Bauer is doing, people are shocked that there are folks that don't feel safe and welcome on a trail or on a waterway. Um, And for us, our perspective is that the outdoors is for everyone. And how can we, what can we do to make sure that that's actually true? So all outside, which is actually getting a little bit of a name change to one outside um, here pretty shortly is a way for us to ensure that folks are getting paid to help change that narrative from the inside out of our organization. And I think the getting paid piece is really important. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I think, you know, and we saw this come up a lot at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, where there was a lot of social posting of Black content without acknowledgement of the creators and definitely without paying for that content. And the number one way that you can support BIPOC is 
pay them for their work. It's, it's a no brainer. And, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, with one outside, we started that model a few years ago in paying folks to help guide the organization to bring their ideas to the forefront through our channels. Um, and it's a really important way, um, that we work. Love it. I love it so much. And can you touch a little bit on, again, as a marketing leader, you mentioned earlier, you did lose some customers. What do you weigh in your mind around, around that decision to be public and take a stand as a brand? If you know, there could be some backlash. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a tough pill at the financial levels, right. To swallow sometimes, um, the thought of losing customers, but the thought of gaining customers in populations that we don't have right now, because we haven't been seen as for them, they can't see themselves in our brand is far more appealing and it's the right thing to do. And I think at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do wins out over everything else. Well, and also just really pulling the company closer together to really revisit and align on their values. And to say that part of aligning on your values is making sure you're attracting the customers who share your values. Right. This is what I've always talked about with my clients is that when you have value statements or a manifesto on your site or a philosophy, that's more than you just sounding good. That's a way for you to attract the right people to say, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to support that company or that business with my dollars. And potentially someone who doesn't hold those values can say, "Mm, you're not for me. And if you're really true to your values, that's okay. Right. And if, if we're saying as an organization that we empower and inspire folks to get outside and have the outdoor experiences that they want to have, and then we're not actually translating that to all people, then we are lying to ourselves. We are lying to the consumer and we're not okay with that. So it really did come back to our values and were we living them? Um, were we living them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And making them actionable. Not just, again, the pretty poster on the wall that says, this is what we stand for, but we really don't make decisions on a daily basis based on our values. Right, right. Yeah. So I would like to talk a little bit about your ability operationally within your team and marketing and what you saw when everyone started working from home, right? All of a sudden you're in an office culture, you start working from home. What was the secret or not so secret? What were the what were the practices that enabled you to pivot your marketing messaging, get out the story to support Black Lives Matter so quickly when you're all working remotely? I know you had mentioned a few things to me when we spoke prior to the interview about how in your mind the remoteness was an advantage and we we talked a little bit about that earlier in terms of more innovation, people feeling safer to contribute their ideas. But can you talk a little bit about maybe to leaders who are struggling with getting their organization to move quickly when everyone is scattered to the winds? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the other advantage of the change that happened was the loss of bureaucracy. You can't have a lot of red tape if you're not sitting within it in the organization, in the <laughs> office building. And I'm sure yeah. a lot of companies still do, but it it was really a bit of a letting go then um, of control, which is kind of the secret for life as mm-hmm. a whole. And 
you know, allowing people to do their jobs. You've hired people for a certain reason with a certain expert expertise and giving them the direction and the tools and allowing them to go forth and create, uh, I think really made the difference for us. Suddenly people weren't beholden to, okay, this is a five review meeting cycle and (laughs) they're suddenly getting ready for the first review instead of developing an idea. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that was the secret sauce. I love it. I love it. Again, there's so many silver linings to this. And I hope at some point when we do go back, not go back to what we had, but when we sort of return to the offices that we don't lose that sense of freedom and that sense of autonomy. But I think what's important to note is, do you feel like that's dependent on the culture you've already built. If you're building a culture of trust where people do feel psychologically safe and also just everybody trusts each other, Mm -hmm. that it's a lot easier to let go of that control. Sort of like you can't have a fear-based culture and expect that to happen just because you're all working from home, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think, I mean, there's some, you know, bureaucracy that exists just due to a company being a certain size or how it is, you know, organized mm-hmm. that I think that's the the piece to chip away at. But definitely if you are a complete fear-based culture, then I think a whole lot of things get worse when you take away the container of the office building. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's a um, healthy, safe, supportive, collaborative culture foundation to begin with, then those things become a lot easier to foster when that red tape is taken away. Well, and I think we're we're anecdotally and in the news cycle seeing some companies that didn't have that culture. And as they go out where everyone's working from home, it just magnifies that issue because now they really can't get stuff done because nobody trusts anybody. And and are they working? They're working from I don't know if they're working from home. You know, that whole mindset of if I can't see them, they're not working. It's just right. we're hearing that that is a pain point for a lot of companies in being able to quickly pivot and adapt to what they need to do now to get products to market or what they need to do now to serve their customers. And we had to adapt quickly in, in this current situation and our customer, we have to adapt to who our customers are now as well. And if we have such a tight reign over our culture and over, if it's dictatorial, if it's fear-based, if it's very transaction oriented and you don't have those quote unquote soft skills, Mm -hmm. absence of those soft skills in a situation like this and a transformational time like this are going to cost you hard dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where, um, credit to, you know, for us specifically, our leadership team comes in and our president who set the stage immediately for, how this whole thing was going to work. We were a little bit of a, you must be in the office culture. And also when we were um, given no choice, but to adapt very quickly, leadership empowered us with the tools and the skills to be able to do that. Um, And also keeping the customer top of mind, that, that customer filter and meeting the customer where they're at, which is the essence of empathy was also uh, top of mind from the top down, which made it really easy to translate and for everybody to adopt. I love it. I love it. It's just the more and more I, I peel back this onion about the impact of soft skills to organizational performance and success, 
the more I find. And this is just, you know, another facet of looking at it. That's like, yeah, when you have to go from the office to remote, if you've got, if you've all got good collaboration skills and you can all trust each other and you've focused on culture in any way, shape or form, you're going to get dividends on that in an environment where you have to adapt. You and I need to rebrand the term soft skills. I, now I'm no. making air quotes because <laughs> they are the most valuable skills. Yeah. And there's data upon, there's study upon study upon study that keeps showing that. I mean, I just did an interview with someone for the podcast that talked about the data around the fact that the most high performing teams function in a culture of psychological safety, like by 42%. Mm-hmm. They've actually quantified it. I mean, don't we all like exist better in our lives with (laughs) safety? Exactly. Yeah. Um, So this is actually a great segue because you talked about this ability of trust and being able to let go of control. And I think this seeks very nicely into what you do when you're not leading a global marketing team, (laughs) (laughs) which is that you are an end of life doula or a death doula. So can you explain that passion work to us? What called you to that and what you've learned from that work that you apply in the workplace and to your leadership style? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. What called me to this work is that I experienced two parental deaths, uh, both of my step parents who I'd had in my life since I was three or four. Um, and I'm 43 now. So for my whole life, I experienced their deaths, um, within close proximity of each other. And they were two very different deaths. One was sudden, um, and traumatic and the other was long and drawn out and traumatic. And in both cases, um, I just, the experiences left me feeling like there has to be another way to do this. We cannot do death in this country the same way that we've always done it because there was, a lack of information, a lack of education, a lack of communication, and a lack of empathy from the folks that were supposed to be caregiving in those situations. And it's systemic issues with hospital systems and the way doctors are trained to, you know, primarily keep people alive and not really ever broach the topic of death. In one of the deaths, we were never told that my parent was dying and it was very clear she was dying. And so when nobody is validating that for you, you can't prepare for it. You can't have conversations that need to be had, et cetera. So then I discovered that there was this uh, role, this new role, um, about 20 years old, um, called an end of life doula. That was around that time in about 2017 where birth doulaing was about 20 years prior. So mm-hmm. new up and coming, just starting to emerge and trying to figure out how it kind of is a sister or brother role with something like hospice. So I went through several trainings and decided um, that this was something, this was a service I wanted to offer the world. I wanted to change the way in this culture that we talk about and deal with death. And so I've been doing that for the last couple of years, albeit a little less actively than I would like, um, because it is a new role and we're still educating people as to the value of it and why they might want to consider a death doula. But the skills that I gained, which are really active listening skills, 
<laughs> and um, holding space. Um, a joke that we have in the death doula community is that, you know, our <laughs> I, I, wait first. I love that you have a joke in the death doula community. That's great. Like you have oh. to, you have to find the humor everywhere. Don't you? You do. You have to, there are, there's <laughs> a lot of humor there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the joke is that, uh, death doulas do nothing because our role is really to hold space and to, allow the person that's dying to look at all the things that they want to look at and kind of just keep it, keep it between the rails for these folks and a lot of other things as well, but that is the biggest function. And so bringing that into business is, you know, has taught me to create space for people to create, to emote, to ideate, to push back, to have all of the very human emotions and reactions and things that they might not, um, actually have permission to have in a corporate setting. Mm -hmm. I love it. Cause I, I can totally see how that work obviously strengthens your empathy muscles. Every time you are dealing with someone strengthens your ability to listen and be present and bringing that back into the workplace in any situation, that's all we really want is we want to be seen, heard, and valued. And the workplace is such a frenetic setting where we, we we're put, there's so many pressures, there's so many things grabbing for our attention that you just don't even give people space to process and breathe and, and get their footing. And so I could see how so many of those skills that you bring, and even just that sense of stillness. Mm-hmm could probably enable you for yourself. I'm, I know I'm speaking for you, but it sounds like that enables you to sort of bring presence to your work as a leader, which is the first step in being an empathetic leader is sort of like dealing with yourself and making sure that you're present and grounded. And I'm sure every situation you go into as a death doula, you have to be, you can't be distracted. You can't be on the phone. You can't be doing all these things. You have to be completely present for these people. And I don't think you'd be able to turn that off going back into the workplace, can you? No, no, you're right. It's kind of like being in the center of the hurricane. The hurricane is going on around you and you are the calm center. Mm -hmm. It provides space and time. And the other piece is being an advocate. You're an advocate for the dying person and how they want to die. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can take those advocacy skills back into the corporate setting and figure out how to be an advocate for the work, for your people, for yourself in a way that maybe you aren't taught in business school. Mm, I wish we were. We need, we need all these courses added to business schools very, very soon and schools in general. But yeah. Kristen, thank you so much for your time today. Um, so much great stuff you gave us to think about. And I am really proud of Eddie Bauer for how they've showed up in this crisis. And it's just lovely to sort of meet one of the people driving that and, and being responsible for that. I, I can selfishly admit that Eddie Bauer is one of my favorite brands and has been ever since we lived in Seattle um, and even prior to that. So um, I'm really glad to see it being a model of how, how a business can be compassionate, how a business can be values led and still be crazy successful. And the more that we can see models like Eddie Bauer in the world, the more we can know you don't have to choose if you're trying to build a successful business. 
you can have it both ways. You can be profitable. You can be purpose-driven at the same time. So thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you and tell them about your podcast as well? Yes. Thank you. Thank you first for um, having me on and giving me some space to be passionate about Eddie Bauer. I'm incredibly proud of the company, incredibly proud of the work that we've done and the teams and the leadership. So it's been awesome to talk about that. You can find me at kristenelliot.co and also the Dying to Live with Kristen Elliott podcast. Love it. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. And everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please remember to rate and review on wherever you get your podcasts. And I can't wait for you to tune in next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Tremendous success.